Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better, for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Join me and many others from the Lean Design and Construction community at their 22nd Annual Congress. It is being held virtually this year, the week of October 19th. Our theme is the ABCs of Lean, transformation through actions, best practices, and coaching. Register at www.lcicongress.org forward slash 2020. Check the show notes for more information. Thank you, LCI. Now, to the show. There's the man. I feel bad. I should go put my jacket on. I told you I was going to dress up for you, man. You're fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go Ducks. This is, a good, this is a good look for me to just to look serious for a little bit, Frank. Uh, yeah, you do look uh, very professional. Yeah, I'm amazed. I... <laughs> yeah, I, I clean up nicely. You do clarify Anywho, so what Anywho. were we gonna talk? What were we gonna talk about today? Talking about your your favorite subject, suicide. Exactly. There you go. Very happy to have my my guest today is Mr. Frank King. Frank, please uh, go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about yourself, who you are. You take as long as you need to introduce yourself just right. Okay. I am the mental health comedian. I wrote jokes for Jay Leno for twenty years. Um, from the time he was guest host to the time he retired from the uh, show. People ask me how I'm surviving the pandemic. I tell them I've had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a heart attack, three stents, and I lost to a duck puppet on Star Search. This is not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> I've been doing stand-up comedy, well, since the fourth grade when I told my first joke. Twelfth grade, I did a contest, a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up. I won. My mom insisted I go to college. I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, graduated. Then moved to San Diego. There's a comedy store there, open mic night. I went down there, I made them laugh, and I decided at that moment on stage, I'm gonna do this for a living. A year later, I asked my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, hey look, I got 10 weeks booked on the road doing stand-up and comedy clubs, you wanna come along? She said yes. So we put everything in storage we couldn't fit into our tiny little Dodge Colt. Gave up our jobs, oh. and we were on the road together 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Beer bars, pool halls, honky-tonks, drunk idiots screaming, tell us some jokes we can dance to. <laughs> Here comes a slow one, you can slow dance. Uh, yeah. Came off the road in 93 April. Got a job at a radio station in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. The number one morning show, rock and roll morning show in Raleigh, North Carolina which I drove to number six in 18 months. Yes. <laughs> One of my proudest moments. Uh, I didn't just drive it in the ground. I drove it in the middle earth. And by that time, comedy club boom and busted. My act was clean. So I made the switch from the bar room to the boardroom from comedy clubs to corporate comedy. I ran that till the recession. And then business dropped off 80% practically overnight. We lost everything in chapter seven bankruptcy. Which, at which point, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Um, I tell that story every time I keynote. A friend of mine was in the audience, and he came up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, 
How come he didn't pull the trigger? And, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> yeah, true story. Um, and at that point, I decided I want to be a, a speaker who's funny, not a funny speaker. I want to teach people something. And I realized I could do suicide prevention because one person dies in the U.S. of, of suicide every 11 minutes. Hardly anybody talks about it. Yeah. Unless you bring it up, then everybody's got a story. But you and I did. We brought it up. Keep going, Frank. Yep. And so I did my first TEDx talk to help me rebrand because everybody, all the event planners, speakers, bureaus thought of me as a funny guy, clean and funny. So when I did my first TEDx and came out as depressed and suicidal and it allowed me to rebrand with those folks <clears throat> that began my speaking career, you know, uh, takeaways, learning objectives, action items. I've done four more TEDx talks since then. I'm pitching a fifth and a sixth all on mental health. And I've been speaking since 2014 strictly on mental health and suicide prevention. I selected a number of occupations that have a high rate, dentists, veterinarians, healthcare, and of course, wait for it, construction. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, which is in the top two or three is construction, excavation, mining, or right there together, then fishing, farming, forestry, then come the white collar dentists of our number one white collar at risk for suicide. So I niche my marketing to those occupations and it's made all the difference. It's, you know, it's, um, I'm finally getting to the point where every speaker's dream is for the client not to say, I want a speaker on mental health. The client to say, I want the mental health comedian. That's the guy I want. <laughs> I get phone calls uh, from people looking for what, you know, looking for me, which is really flattering. Uh, even in the pandemic. I got a call yesterday from a guy in Denver who's works for a nonprofit and wants to do a comedy night. They did, they did it a year before yeah. to raise money, but they didn't have any mental health comedians. They said comedians. And he goes, you know, we realized maybe if we're going to do a comedy show, have somebody with some, you know, lived experience. Anyway, that's my story. I went from funny speaker to speaker who's funny. And, and I coach TEDx talks and yeah. uh, I work with them until they get it. I have a flat fee and it's called my till death do us part plan. And we work on that TEDx until you get one or we both die trying, which seems to appeal to them. The fact that yeah, it seems guaranteed, Frank. It's impressive. You know, most people don't do well at public speaking. We had uh, in our company, we're a large general contractor. We do quite a bit of training internally. Yeah. So people, they rotate through and get voluntold. You're going to have to leave the training at least at one point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the first time that that joke's actually made a laugh. So oh. uh, thank you, Frank, for laughing at that joke. And you made a comedian laugh, which is not the easiest thing to do because we're jaded. We've heard it all. I'm so used to that voluntold phrase that I don't even laugh anymore because it's it's never good to be voluntold to do no. something. No. But if you like um, getting paid. But we had uh, a new hire recently uh, uh, in the office close to where I am here in California, and she was going to have to present for the first time since – school which was like she just got out of school recently doesn't like to public speak which i think for one time it used to be the number one fear was public speaking don't you remember the seinfeld joke he had a joke about that he goes the number one fear i'm more afraid of public speaking than of dying which means at the funeral the guy giving the eulogy would rather be in the casket <laughs> yeah yeah i think I, I do remember that one yeah yeah, That's people people terrifies people. It's uh, I mean, I'm more comfortable on stage than I am in real life, so it's not a 
it's not a big issue for me but i've i've had friends comics who one in particular used to throw up before every show that's how nervous he got well i have a friend who quit he was doing really well and he got so anxious before the show he loved being on stage but that that period right before the show it just he finally just quit he said i just can't i can't take the pressure leading up to the show you've got a good uh a good story frank i saw your your tedx talk i'm definitely going to put a link to it in the show so people can see your talk and and the the connection that you make with your audience is instantaneous like i hear it watching the show i'm listening to what you say and also how's the audience reacting to you and uh you had people hanging on every word yeah my wife said she was watching one of my comedy shows she goes you know what i love to watch i love to watch you seduce the audience <laughs> she says it's almost like a wave you can see from the front to the back it to go over time you, you draw them in yeah so that's what this this new person was asked how do you speak publicly like how do you do public speaking and my answer was the dumb just public speak like just do more of it <laughs> <laughs> you know the very Duh. the very direct i think and i and i told her my story that when i first started doing it i was terrible like people would pay me to shut up it was so bad <laughs> Thank you for laughing, Frank. Like these yeah. dad jokes that I drop in my house every day don't get the same kind of laughs that I'm getting with you. So I appreciate oh, man. that. It's like a farmer who gets paid not to grow something. Yeah. Don't you remember that joke? I goes, you know, I got paid this year not to grow corn. I think next year I'll not grow tobacco. Like, <laughs> they're paying you not to speak. Yeah. So that was my, my advice. It didn't go over well. I think it was probably in the delivery. <laughs> what would you, I mean, you do lots of different types of speaking comedy stages to yeah. honky-tonk bars and then corporate boardrooms and conferences and what would you tell somebody who's who wants to public speak or at least be good at doing it toastmasters toastmasters oh there yeah you go. It's, it's a great they've got a manual and they have a series of speeches all seven minutes and there's like a humor speech and a speech to convince and a speech you know and and it's a track you run on and it's a very receptive audience you know, they're all pulling for you. Yeah. They keep track of grammar and how many times you say, uh, and yeah, it's a great way. If you aren't already public speaking, I, I recommend people go to Toastmasters for a couple of years and get comfortable in front of a, like, it's like, it's like home court advantage. Get in, in front of people that create, that like you, that are going to support you. And then, cause you know, when you get out in the real world, especially when I was doing clubs, you know, it's just, I had a guy pull a gun on me once on stage. I'm standing there on stage. Over an offensive joke or what was it? No, it was Kingsport, Tennessee. It was a club called the grocery company. It was an old dry goods store, three floors, restaurant, bar, and comedy club. They loved the guy who came before me, a guy named Pat Miller, three feet wide, three feet tall, 300 pounds. They had built a platform for the comics to stand on to get us up a little bit. Pat's walking across the platform. A board breaks under his foot. You can hear it all over the room. Best ad lib I've ever heard. He turns to the audience. He goes, nobody panic. It's just a stage I'm going through. <laughs> so they loved him. They hated me. Wow. So I looked down about halfway through my show, and it's, I can only see the guy in the front row because of the lights in my eyes. But I can see over his shoulder is the hand of the guy in the next row with a nickel-plated thirty-eight with a hammer back pointed at me. So I turned sideways to make a smaller target, lowered my elbow to cover my vital organs best I could, and just waited. And a woman in the back got tired of waiting. In about 90 seconds, she screams out, either shoot him or put it away. 
Yeah, that's that's <laughs> as bad as it gets. That's wow. that's that's one nighters. That's yeah. You talk to a comic that's ever done the road like that. The one nighters what hold the tour together because they're improvs and really nice week long clubs. But the glue was those horrible one nighters in between time, and then when they disappeared and they went, you know, bars went to the next big bar thing like dwarf tossing or whatever. Then the there was there were no there were no more one night comedy gigs and so uh, you couldn't make a living on the road so that's when I went into radio and been into corporate comedy. I've reinvented myself. I don't know how many times. But at the core, I mean, you still connect with people well, and you are funny, Frank. Oh, thank you, thank you for saying so. Yeah, every time that we've talked, uh, you've had me laughing every time. <laughs> well, you've had me laughing. I'm laughing yeah. dad jokes. Uh, oh. You know. Voluntold. You're, uh, you're just being polite. That's all. No, no, but, uh, no. no the, it, it is a sin to encourage mediocrity. I would not do that to you. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go upstairs and brag after we get done. <laughs> if I just say stupid stuff by accident, I get the good laughs. Yeah, that's. I'm telling you, that's a skill. That's a talent is to be yeah. able to deliver it that way because it takes take. people by surprise. The reason that we connected and we wanted. I wanted definitely to have you come on the show. We kind of touched on this the last time you and I talked. That's like a recurring theme in every one of my guests has been this topic of suicide and construction. Mm-hmm. And the last guest that I had on talked about going to some funerals. Yep. And and it's a heavy topic. It's the number one killer in my industry right now. Yeah, that is correct. You guys lead the league. Yeah, and I did the the rate that's published on the CDC's website before COVID is 50 for every 100,000 people or mm-hmm. one out of 2,000. Just to think that on a crew of 2,000 people or on a project or every two projects that somebody is getting to that level where they've got to just take themselves out, that's a very sobering fact. Yes. And one of the things I wanted to, to ask you is, you know, how can we that that have so many touch points with people on the staff, be it in the trades, on the frontline workers, or people in the offices that have this connection point with all these individuals, what is something that we can look at? How can we be aware of what's happening, the state of mind of our of our people? Well, um, we can talk about the signs and symptoms. I'm going to my um, Google machine here. Yeah, well, you looked that up, Frank. We were we do an annual conference that we participate in, the Lean Construction Institute. And last year, we were in Fort Worth, Texas. And we had almost two thousand people in the audience. And on the on one of the opening days, that kind of opens up the whole session. We we do in construction the safety moment. Yeah. And we had uh, individual head of their prepared safety moment come up. And uh, they talked about mental health and construction, in particular suicide. At that time, it was the second leading cause of mortality. And that was just October of last year. And and by coincidence, this workplace, suicidepreventioncom and I put it in the chat box, it was, uh, they, finished, they finished it in October of last year. And I think the... Um, the premise is take the pledge, be vocal, be visible, be visionary, be part of the workplace um, suicide prevention solution. It's guidelines for the workplace. And my co-author, Sally Spencer Thomas, on the book on men's mental health, helped to put the guidelines together, create the pledge, um, again, to raise awareness. 
And uh, we talked about this last time. The one of the reasons construction has such a high rate is it's male heavy. Eight out of ten people who die by suicide in the U.S. as of this year are men. And you know, in, in construction, you get rough and tumble guys. You know, yeah. Men are raised not to cry, not to show their feelings, not to. And it's not just mental health; it's also physical health. You know, how many guys I know who didn't ever have a PSA test or a colonoscopy and end up dying of colon cancer, something eminently treatable if you catch it early. Yeah. Uh, same with prostate cancer. If you catch it early, it's got a 94% cure rate. So, but, you know, men just don't, you know, think that way. Many men don't think that way. So, and construction again is male heavy. Yeah, it's uh, 91% male. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, that's one of the reasons I chose it as an occupation to focus on because A, they have a high rate. B, uh, to the construction industry's credit, they're working very hard to bring that rate down. Uh, not every industry in the top 10 or 12, I've approached farming, farmers, farm bureaus, and they have actually said they're offended I brought it up. I go, well, you're like in the top five. Well, we know that. Okay, all right. You know, farmers now with the tariffs and the weather and the, you know i mean it's, just, it's a tough business anyway and they're very solitary usually working alone deeply in debt yeah so it's yeah so kudos to construction for stepping up and going look we got we got to turn this thing around do what you can what you feel comfortable with right sometimes people just need someone to listen not to solve problems yeah just listen just when listen people, people ask me what do i do with my friends depressed what do i say don't say anything yeah, just, don't give them advice. Shut up. Yeah, shut up and listen. Yeah, a friend of mine goes, I just want somebody to co-sign the BS I'm going through. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the symptoms of depression, by the way, a couple of them that are relatively obvious, um, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep, has trouble getting to work on time in the morning, but rallies in the afternoon. And then there's a very visible one, which is um, they let their personal hygiene go. You know, the hair is not quite as clean. Clothes are a little more dirty because they're having trouble dragging themselves out of bed to get to the bathroom to do a load of wash. Very obvious signs. I'm reading Malcolm Gladwell's book called Blink. It's about the adaptive unconscious and, you know, making sort of snap judgments, but based on you didn't consciously, you know, hear or see something, but in your brain you know something triggered and so you he i think the first example he gave was artwork they had a piece of artwork everybody thought was an original they brought these people in and their first thoughts were like um did you pay for this already yes i did that's too bad uh, <laughs> and and they asked her why she said that she goes i i don't know it just popped into my head so the point of the story is if you walk by somebody and the word depression bubbles up in your head, <laughs> you know, after you make eye contact, go with your gut. It may be that you've spotted something, heard or seen something unconscious that, that triggered that thought that, you know, that always default to asking, um, are you depressed and be persistent? Because people say, no, I'm fine. No, something's wrong. Um, Let's go in my office and chat about this. I think there's something. I met a guy at a, at a safety meeting, and he had mental illness, circling the drain, 
he'd got to the point where he was getting his affairs in order, giving away his prized possessions, which is a sign that you're rolling up to a suicide. He picked time, place, and method. There were a couple of cars in the parking lot that were unlocked. He knew there were guns in the glove compartment. He's walking out at lunch to one of those cars. He passes a coworker. The guy says something to him. He says something back. And the guy, before he got back to his office, thought something's wrong. Turned around, followed the guy to the parking lot, and was persistent, said, come back to my office. And he got him back to the office, and the guy broke down. He goes, I'm, 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 I'm depressed. I'm, I'm to the point where I'm going to kill myself. And I told my, my boss, and he said, you've got to get over it. That was his big cure. And, and so I need, and I need to go to a mental health facility. So the, the gentleman drove the fellow who was in crisis to the mental health facility. They checked him in for three days in an outpatient program. That's the only reason he was at the meeting I was at, because a coworker had noticed something went with his gut, tracked him down, and sure enough, his friend was about to kill himself in the car that day. So it's, you know, it's, it's eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want you to, to notice and say something. Nine out of 10 give hints in the week leading up to the suicide attempt. Again, they want somebody to pick up on it and go, hey. So if they say they're depressed, next question, this is a hard one, tough one. Are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can. And if they say yes, you ask them, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, what is your plan? And if, of course, if it's detailed, then you need to get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, or they've got a text line now for younger people. You, you text the word HELP to 741-741. If they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone. The volunteer on the Lifeline will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. Question always comes up, when do you dial 911? If they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, you have to dial 911. You have no choice. Now, if their plan is not particularly detailed, my advice is, next question, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, here's the important one. Okay, then tell me why not. Make mm -hmm. them give voice to what yeah. is keeping them around. So, that's by the way, that's not in any... Psych psychology book, a psychiatrist and I came up with those two questions. Are you going to kill yourself? Well, then tell me why not. Um, the idea being that if we let people give voice to those feelings, maybe not as many people would die by suicide. Because, you know, people say, well, you never made any indication, never even mentioned depression or suicide. If we let them say those things out loud without getting freaked out or locking them down for three days, then maybe people would you know, feel more comfortable talking about it. Because yeah. if I said, if I, if I say to a clinician, yeah, I've, I've got chronic suicidal ideation. I think about suicide all the time. They are obligated by law, take me in front of a judge. They decide whether I need to be detained for three days with no shoelaces or belt. Um, so in people wonder why nobody mentions the fact they're suicidal. They don't want to go get locked down. It's not uh, socially acceptable to talk about those types of things. Well, it scares people to death. And, and part of the problem is one of the reasons people don't ask is that they don't know what, they don't want to know the answer. Cause what if, what if you ask me if I'm suicidal and I go, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. What now? Yeah. Yeah. Awkward. That, Awkward. Uh, that feeling of uncomfortableness. People are not used to feeling uncomfortable. No, it is a very, and what part of the problem is, if I say I'm suicidal, they don't know what to say, but they may be certain 
they're going to say the wrong thing and push me over the edge. There's an urban legend. You should never mention the word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And I love the reasoning. They might give them the idea. <laughs> suicide. What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> yeah. Trust me. It's crossed my mind. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably crossed the minds of more people than we think about. If people step back and, you know, even like the every average day person. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't thought about their own mortality at least once? And, you know, in this situation with the pandemic and the COVID and whatever, there's a lot of situational depression because of all the uncertainty. And and even before COVID, most people that I've met at some point in their lives, they went bankrupt, they got divorced, they flunked out of college, and they had a fleeting thought, you know, why bother? Why don't I, I could just kill myself. This is just not worth the effort. Um, I live with that you know, day in, day out. So it's, I mean, it's not, you know, I told you, I had, my car broke down. I had three thoughts, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's the way my mind works. It's always option C. It's like, well, just kill yourself. Mm, there's an idea. Uh, but I'm so used to that inner dialogue or monologue or whatever, that I don't, it's not a serious, it was a serious thought when I went bankrupt because I had a million dollars in life insurance and my wife would be broken hearted, but she would not be broke. No. So that's, you know, that's one of the things about suicide is people say it's a selfish act. Not in, not in my mind, not in the mind of the people often who are thinking about it, because I figured the world would be better off without me. My wife would be brokenhearted. Yes, but the million dollars would restore her financially. She wouldn't have to worry uh, anymore about her next meal. And so it's really a selfless act, irrational but a selfless act in the mind of the person who's considering suicide because they do think about the people they're leaving behind. That's one of the reasons they may be doing it. Yeah. Well, I think that whole idea of rational, irrational, I mean, there have been studies that show that, you know, if you, if you deprive somebody of sleep a little bit, their, their IQ goes down, their ability to have rational thought goes down. If you put somebody under stress, your ability to think rationally decreases exponentially. The yep. more, you, get, you can get somebody all the way to the state of panic where they're just operating you know, on the very core essence of their, themselves. They're not doing any higher level thinking. They're not going to do a math problem. They're not going to you know, weigh advantages <clears throat> in one thing over another. They're just operating on a pure survival mechanism. And uh, if you're under chronic stress, that is significantly impacting your ability to think rationally yep. or even just to be aware of your own emotions. Like how far do you go into sadness before you recognize that you're sad? It's probably not like one day it's a switch flipped, like the lights on off. <laughs> no, no. But even though the irrational part of my brain wanted me dead and wanted, you know, my life insurance to pay my, wanted me dead. The rational part of my brain said to me, you've got to call your insurance agent, your life insurance agent, and make sure this policy is going to pay a million dollars. And so I called and asked him how long I'd had it, knowing there's a two-year suicide clause in that particular policy. And he says, oh, you had it 22 months. And then he said, oh, no, 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 don't do it. Because he'd had that conversation a number of times and delivered checks. Yeah. After somebody, you know, was all paid up and he delivered the check to the heirs. So I had to wait 60 days, 61 days before I killed myself. But because I have chronic suicidal ideation and I was well aware that I could kill myself on day 61, that allowed me to 
wait two months. And no, knowing I could do it when time came and my wife would get a million bucks. Fortunately, by day 61, I don't recall 61, 62, 63, you know, it wasn't like I was counting the days down until the day I could do it. Life got a little better, bankruptcy went through, phone call stopped. Just enough relief in the depression that I wasn't thinking about it on day 61. And here I am, oh, so many years later. Over a decade later, right? Yeah, a decade later. Um, yeah, and there have been some instances in the meantime, when I was having my second heart surgery, <clears throat> when I was replacing the valve I had replaced, it's much more difficult the second time around. And the surgeon said, look, 10% chance you're gonna die. I would have framed it a little differently, but okay. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> 90% yeah. chance you'll do fine. 10%, it is open heart surgery. So they're rolling me down the corridor to surgery and I'm, you know, and now, now death is, is becoming far more concrete. Cause I'm thinking, you know, they're going to put me out and I may never come back. Um, and again, I had the thought, well, you know, I've got a million dollars in life insurance. My wife's not going to be destitute. And then I'm in ICU and I wake up and I cracked an eye open. And I looked around, I'm intubated, looked yeah. around, thought, well, hell, <laughs> I made it this far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and because you're so, you know, drugged up. I get in a private room, you know, they move me to the room and they sit me on the bed and the nurse says, well, I bet you're glad that's over. And I go, what's over? She goes, your valve job, silly. It's over. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm half in the bag, you know, it's, uh, yeah. but yeah, you know, it's when it becomes concrete, all of a sudden, you know, 10% chance you're not going to make it out the other end of this. Oh, hello. Which has, you know, taken, it's taken a bit of the, the um, shine off the idea of killing myself when you get that close and it's, uh, you know, it's 10% chance. That's a solid, you know, one in 10 chance you're not coming out. That, yeah. that changes your thinking a little bit. Your overall emotional state leading up to that was what, what would you say? Oh, uh, it was pretty good. Actually, um, I was uh, making everybody laugh in the, you know, in the, uh, as they prepare you for surgery. I made the phlebotomist and the anesthesiologist and all these people laughed. I had a thought during that period. I'm having a great show. My second thought was, well, I better. This may be my last one. <laughs> You're closing. You're going to go out big. Well, and I had a heart attack in 2002 years later. The two arteries I had replaced occluded. They blocked on the same day. I'm two miles from the house, half a mile up a logging trail with the dogs all by myself. Um, I've got T-Mobile, so I don't have cell service. <laughs> that never that's fails a, to get a laugh. Yeah, I got that's a that's my wife's carrier. So oh, it's horrible. <laughs> it's like uh, yeah, I'll, she's always like, uh, yeah, you're gonna have to make the call because my phone's not. Yeah, phone. But yeah, that was before the merger. I mean, now yeah. so allegedly it's gonna be a brand new day for them. Once we get 5G here, it'll be a brand new day. But I've called them more than once and go, look, here's the deal. you got a great international plan, 25 cents a minute in any country in the world, pretty much. And I go, I'm in Cartagena, Colombia. i got four bars, 4G. In, in Salem, Oregon, I drive under a bridge, the signal drops. I'm, well, why is that? I said, you know, Osama bin Laden planned the 9-11 attacks from a cave with a cell phone. What I want to know is who was his carrier? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I'm in the woods. I'm having, a, I know it's a heart attack because it presented over my left shoulder where it always, you know, angina always presents. 
but this time when I had valve problems, if I just stopped moving, it would stop hurting, you know, it, but this time it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And people think if you're depressed and suicidal, it's 24, seven, 365. And that's not true. I mean, I have more good days than bad, but if I'd wanted to die a socially acceptable death, you know, where nobody really knew, except the dogs would know that I chose to end my life. Um, I could have just sat down on the trail, waited for the nature to run its course. They would have found me, noticed that I had heart attack symptoms, had T-Mobile, couldn't call anybody. <laughs> and uh, so, but I wanted to live. So I had to walk a half mile down the hill. And people always ask, we, you know, what are we thinking about? I mean, because when, when you're having a heart attack, the muscle is dying. So you're dying. And did you, did you see a light? Did you hear your relatives thinking about your wife? I had a, my first Ted talk was going to be two weeks later on suicide prevention. And I'm walking down the hill crying because I'm thinking, you know, God, I, I'm not going to get to give that Ted talk on suicide prevention. And I'm thinking about all the lives I could have saved and I'm crying as I'm going to the car. Uh, I had to get to the car by the way, cause we had three dogs. We have three dogs and there's a busy road right beyond where we park. So if I, didn't make it to the car they'd be out in the road and these logging trucks going back and they'd be done so we're like I'm, we're, our family's pet center we're like the marines we never leave anybody behind so my goal was to get to the car get the dogs in the car if i dropped dead then fine at least they'd find the dogs in the car in you know in the shade and my wife you know but yeah. uh i drove home and i walked in the house said to my wife yelled honey i'm having a heart attack down 911 and I hear this, I'm in the bathroom. I got the fan on. I can't hear you. <laughs> really? Walked half mile, drove to, died in my hallway. No, that's not going to happen. She opened the door, took one look at my face, which this is her joke. She goes, it was whiter than the Oscars. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody's a comedian in your house, Frank. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Uh. Yeah, the other day I was having trouble or in the car and I'm trying to put my gum in the little, um, you know, wastebasket there on the, in the footwell on her side, yeah. on the pasture. And I can't quite find, and I said, I can't find the opening. And she goes, well, that explains why we don't have any kids. <laughs> God. <laughs> that's my lovely wife. So that's as close as I've come to dying since, you know, I had the gun in my mouth and, uh, it's, uh, well, and the reason I survived by the way, is because if you put your heart under load every day, like on the elliptical runner, which I was doing like an hour a day at 25 with the highest, uh, I worked my way up to, you know, the highest. <clears throat> and the surgeon said, look, the reason you're alive is because what happens when you have a heart attack is all the architecture around your heart, the veins, arteries, whatever, they do something called vasodilate if you've been working out. They get as big as they possibly can to push blood to the area that's under, you know, crisis. Yeah. He goes, otherwise, you, if you've been sitting on your cam for six months, you'd be dead in the woods. But your heart, <laughs> it was ready. All right, let's rock. That's what we trained for. Exactly. That's what we trained for. As a matter of fact, I, on the, when I worked the ship, somebody came up to me because they saw me in the gym every day on the elliptical runner. They go, what are you trying to do, live forever? I go, no, I'm just trying to survive that next heart attack. Uh <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you so. said you had two valve replacements, one heart attack. Yeah, valve replacement ninety five. Um, had a bicuspid valve. You need three cuspids is what you need. My dad had the same thing, killed him at forty. I had mine fixed mm -hmm. at thirty nine. I got a human valve um from a donor or here's the joke, 
uh, you know, a cadaver or an attorney who wasn't using it. And, uh, <laughs> and it had miles on it. So we didn't know how long it, but it lasted 17 years, eight months and 26 days, which is a long time for a tissue valve. Yeah. And so the next one I got was mechanical, which should, you know, theoretically last me the rest of my days. So, and yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a good heart patient. I, I'm on the, a diet and the exercise and my, I feel bad for my cardiologist because, you know, they call them frequent flyers. People come in get triple bypass, go back smoking and eating pork rinds. Three years later, they're back. Another triple bypass. You know, it must be frustrating for the doctor. Yeah, it's hard to keep making those expensive car payments on getting that new Porsche every year. Hey, listen, that that bypass surgery is a money maker. I asked my nurse when I was in there for testing. I said, uh, "How's business?" He goes, "Frank, as long as people in Oregon keep making bad lifestyle decisions, I'll have a job." Well, that's <laughs> one way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was a. Uh, younger my first job was working at a sewage water treatment plant it was like the same type of thing as long as people have to keep going to the bathroom money in the yeah. bank <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And as my dad used to say even queen elizabeth has to do number two occasionally yeah nobody escapes that <laughs> yeah. so that's you know that's it's i've come close to dying a number of times uh but again i'm not i'm not it's odd because I have this chronic suicidal aviation. I'm not, I'm not scared of dying. I don't want to die, but I'm not, you know, it's, I've been so close so many times that, uh, didn't I tell you a guy called and threatened me one time he's going to come kill me? No, he didn't tell yeah. me that. Um, well, I did a cruise in the Pacific about the time the pandemic broke out and I came home and everybody thought I came home dragging the virus and guy calls me up and he goes you came back to this county to kill everybody and i said no i've got a list and you just made the vip section um, <laughs> comic and he goes I'm, yeah. i know where you i know where you work out i'm coming to kill you i said okay fine think two things one i've been trying to kill myself for 40 years and I haven't been successful yet and two uh know this i don't want to die but i'm not scared of dying so put that into your calculations before you show up because, you know, if you come after the king, you need to kill the king, as they say. Yeah. Come after the king, you better kill him. I mean, you better kill me. Because if you don't, <laughs> I got nothing to lose. So it's, it's a strange, strange existence. But, you know, the that kind of, pardon the expression, frankness about mental health, mental illness, depression, thoughts, suicide, it allows other people to give voice that's my job is to start the conversation and give people the opportunity to give voice to those experiences and thoughts without recrimination. And that's, that's, you know, I've been told more than once, you know, we, we brought you in here simply to start the conversation because silence kills, get people talking, let them share their stories. Yeah. So that's my job. Uh, that guy, I'm on stage. I'm vulnerable. Guys don't normally be vulnerable. I get a little choked up when I tell my stories. Um, and, it's apparently it, you know, it, it allows other people to do the, you know, I've had people come up weeping after I got done um, and tell me a story. So, yeah. and things that they'd never told anybody else. You're making a space to start the conversation and you're given labels to things that in, in our culture, we're not allowed to talk about. When I did the VPPPA, the safety organization, um, and told my story and, and, and I had grown men. Grizzled, 
grown men, linemen and things, uh, you know, work for the power company, come up, stand there at the booth where I was and just, you know, had lost a friend, a friend of 14 years in the last year to suicide. I mean, it's just tears streaming down his face, a grown man crying in front of another grown man in an auditorium. Um, he'd never, he'd never had that conversation about his friend. You know, I would have done anything for him. I wish I'd known. I wish he'd told me I would have moved heaven and earth to keep him alive and just, you know, tears. And so that's, that's the power of sharing the story and giving people permission to give, especially men, you know, it's, uh, I want to make, um, Felipe, I want to, I want to make talking about depression, thoughts, suicide as easy as talking about sports or the weather where you just, you know, it's just a, topic of conversation no taboos just you know yeah that's big it, job uh, but yeah, you got a big uh you set your goal high frank that's for sure <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yeah well i want to make suicide i want to zero suicide you know i want to be able to say someday well frank how come you're not speaking anymore well you know if people were killing themselves i'd be speaking but uh, you know what can i tell you <laughs> that's my goal yeah. Uh, well, then you could you could pivot and then start helping the the comedy clubs start going back to the horrible one nighters. Oh God! Oh Lord! Oh yeah! And people ask me, why don't you book comedians? You know, like get them work because they're comedians. I would kill them. I I just they're irresponsible. They got no work <laughs> ethic. Uh, yeah. No, I'm I'm uh, I did a podcast this morning. The guy calls it um, uh, living on purpose. You're talking about having your purpose. And I, and, and I said to him, I, I found my purpose and my passion. I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. You know, I just, uh, people call me all the time with a question about resources or they got a friend or, you know, they have a problem. I give yeah. out my phone number to all the keynotes. And I said, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell. <laughs> every time. Yeah. And, and I get a call every now and then. And a kid, a young man called me. He goes, I can't believe this is your cell number. I go, how mean would that be to put a fake number up on the screen? I said, you know what? I'll make it even worse. Hold, please. And I said, as a comic, here's the way a comic thinks. You know what the hold music is? The on hold music is? Another no. one. Lights of dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. <laughs> that yeah. would be mean. No, you can laugh about it and joke about it. Yeah, and people call and I... You know, because I speak the language, I hear the same music they do. They don't have to explain anything, you know, because neuronormal people really care and they want to help, but they just really don't know, you know, what to say. And we talked about this at the beginning. Don't say anything. Just simply actively listen and be there for them. Did you, I don't do therapy. Uh, I just plant seeds of hope. That's, a, that's my job. Mm -hmm. Just plant a seed of hope. And then, you know, and then if you have a conversation with somebody about the depression, follow up in a day or so. Just check in on them. Show them you care. And make sure they're, you know, things are improving. Um, because they want somebody to mention. They want somebody to interrupt. They want somebody to come to their rescue. Uh, eight out of ten, nine out of ten times. So so the, the good news is, you know, we can make a difference. We can save a life. And we can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right now. Yeah. That is beginning the conversation on this. So. No, that's great. So you've got, uh, yeah, we're going to give the, the workplaces suicidepreventioncom Yep. Slash take action, take the pledge. That take site's going to take the pledge. We'll put that link out there for people. We'll flash it up on the screen too. 
those watching on YouTube can see it, but it'll be in the show notes. Uh, it's good. The big takeaway for me talking to you, Frank, has been listen to people that are yeah. talking. Ask the two questions. Listen you, to your gut. If you walk by somebody yeah. and you think, something's wrong, go with that Malcolm Gladwell blink. Just go with your gut. Something in something somewhere in your brain triggered. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's milliseconds sometimes. Um, and, yeah, you picked up and go with that. Better yeah, to do that than find out they died and think, oh, man, I could have said something I noticed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, if you knew, yeah, regret is really tough to live with. <sighs> Survivor's guilt? Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather I, err on the side of being too nosy than to not care. Well, and here's something that a, a company called um, Clow, C-L-O-W. Uh, you, you know them, but you don't know them. They make fire hydrants. I've seen C-L-O-W on fire hydrants my entire life, and I thought it stood for something, the C, something. It's the name of the company, Clow. And they brought me in for safety every January. They have a safety meeting. And they decided as an SOP is that if somebody in the company asks you, are you depressed and having thoughts of suicide? The first thing out of your mouth has to be, thank you for asking. So that the people who are, you know, get that tickle in their brain and think something's wrong. When they ask, they're not worried. They're going to get harshed on for asking. They're not, you know, it's first thing out of their mouth has got to be, thank you for asking. And then say, you know, well, I got a new baby. I've been up three nights. I haven't slept. That's why I'm a little off my game. But I think it's brilliant to, to insist that whoever gets asked, you know, I really appreciate you care that much. Thank you for asking. But no, I'm, you know, it's a new baby and I haven't slept, whatever. So. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good to note. And if. Like you said, if you see something, there's, you know, tell you with technology, there's a phone number, the text message, 741-741. Yep. Super easy to remember and to text and just listening. I had a, a guy actually call me. We didn't talk about this the last time, but I had a friend that I had made a few years ago. And we kind of were the type of friendship where we talk just a couple times a year because we're mm -hmm. in different states and called me out of the blue and and I just had that feeling something's off. And it was like the end of the day. Yep. And uh, he starts talking and, you know, the conversation, the conversation ends up going three hours. Whoa. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of listening on my part. I recognized like what this was. And in college I had been a, a resident assistant. So we got a little bit of training on the floor with, I mean, like, Next to no training, just a, a mention, Frank, of what yep. it could look like if you're if somebody is having mental issues, because that is actually something. And just the time that I was in school, quite a few people took their lives where I went to school in, in the big city of Chicago. And uh, it's, it wasn't talked about. Nope. And I thought the best thing I could do is just listen and just intuition. to keep asking questions. Yeah. Intuition. My intuition said just keep asking questions, keep listening. And then I could get a sense that through the the time that my friend was starting to feel better just minusculely better not because of anything that i said but just because somebody's on the other end and actually cared yes exactly plant seeds of hope yeah and i and i told my friend like you know you can actually call me like you did today you've had my phone number 
right? And I did answer the phone when you rang it. It's proof positive that uh, I didn't send you straight to voicemail, but I said, I want you to realize that, you know, that uh, I keep a pretty tight schedule and occasionally I can't answer the phone right away. Yeah. But if you call, I will call you back. So I said, it's, it's there for you to, you can always call me and tell me what's going on and how things are going. And uh, I do need to follow back up with my friend to see what's, uh, what's been going on. Well, and I've got an acquaintance who had a conversation with somebody like that for three hours. And the guy that he was talking to apologized at the end of the three, he said, I'm sorry, I, you know, I dumped on you, my situation, for three hours. And my acquaintance said to him, look, I'd rather hear what's happening in your world and how things aren't going well for three hours than to sit through 20 minutes of a eulogy at your funeral. So, yeah, and I told my, my friend too kept apologizing. And I said, listen, the only thing you can't do in this conversation is keep apologizing <laughs> Yeah, because uh... <laughs> you haven't done anything wrong. And no. I told, uh, you know, people that, that struggle with that. It's these emotions are all part of the human spectrum of emotions. Oh yeah. And they gotta, they gotta be expressed, right? They're, they're better, healthier ways to express them than others. Yes. For sure. Well, good but, on you for hanging on there for three hours. Yeah. No, and, and this goes for any any of my friends that call. They know, like, my inner circle of friends know how much I love to talk on the phone. As you, Frank, have been a victim of my conversations <laughs> yeah, before. that's true. <laughs> you call me for 20 minutes, and I think we talk for over an hour. Over an hour, yeah. That is correct. Well, and I have. Know. Yeah, and I had to boot you off the phone because I had another call to go to afterwards. That's correct. That's the only reason we got off. We'd still be on there now if you hadn't had another phone call. That's right. Yeah, I love to talk. I learn more from the people that, that talk with me than the other way around. Well, and you mentioned early on in this conversation that the, the topic of suicide kept coming up in the podcast. And after you and I talked that day, the next day, I got a, an email from a friend who's in the dental business and has a podcast and you know what he said he goes frank it's just the strangest thing the topic of suicide just keeps coming up in the last month or so it just more so than ever before we need so tomorrow at 12 15 my time 3 15 his we're going to do exactly what you and i are doing we're going to revisit uh, because of the pandemic and the COVID and the uncertainty he said you, we got to do it because i've done one already couple of months ago because we, we got to do another because the dang thing just keeps coming up so it's obviously yeah. top of mind for a lot of people a lot of folks yeah it's top of mind like i tell people like just to get some perspective on what we're facing with the pandemic and the economy we're in uncharted territory the oh, great yeah. depression which people thought was the worst ever we're beyond those unemployment numbers by far oh yeah I think the last I heard were north, just the United States alone, north of 30 million people unemployed suddenly. Yep. Right? That's a lot of people in a country of 350 million, give or take, three at 320, I think, the last census data, and then mm -hmm. figure a, a large portion of those are kids. I think there's only like something like around 100 million working people, mm -hmm. roughly. So a third of the country can't work right now. That's a large number of people that are not used to not working. No, and with the depression, banks crashed, you know, and then that was over, 
and they began to slowly but surely rebuild. With this, there's this, you know, there's the original, then the surge, is it coming back? You know, should kids go to school? What if, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, there's no real beginning, middle, end yet to this situation. Is it gonna be around like HIV forever? You know, it's just gonna be a chronic illness that people deal with from now on. We don't know. So yeah, it's, the uncertainty I think is what um, is causing the situational depression, anxiety, and of course thoughts of suicide. Yeah, I remember, you know, in, in my house, it's a, we have a weird house here, Frank, the engineer Manrique's house is very strange. My son is, uh, he's now 10 years old. Since he was about the age of five, he's been saying like he wants to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist when he gets older. And we were just like, you know, he watched some one too many Peanuts cartoons and thought, he'd, yeah, he'd make, yeah. you know, five cents a, a customer, you know, but uh, the little guys like held on to it. And uh, one time he was, he was asking me, I was putting him to bed. And he said, daddy, what happens when you die? And I said, I was like, do you know something? I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, if I'm going to answer your question, but do you know something I should know? Yeah. Uh, his mom whispering, like, you know, little somethings in your ear. And uh, he was just had seen something, you know, in a cartoon or yeah. uh, he just got the sense at that age that uh, dad's not going to live forever. Yeah. And we had to have that talk. And he was, man, I feel like he was probably four and a half. Wow. You know, or five. And he was asking about, you know, when's daddy going to go? What's life going to be like? And I said, well, it's not going to be as much fun as it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he agreed with that he still agrees you know even now at 10 so i think i'm doing something right he still agrees that it won't be as much fun but it's uh it's something that you know kids think about adults think about we don't we don't talk about i can't tell you that i've ever had water cooler talk in my career my 20 plus years in construction where suicide was appropriate water cooler talk it's like you said we're faster to talk about the weather Mm -hmm. than sports and then heaven forbid, but we do more often than we admit politics. Yep. But suicide doesn't come up, Frank. Not yet. Well, and I did a show at Lackland Air Force Base. The uh, commander, Mary O'Brien, first female commander at Lackland. They do a lot of uh, drone, you know, work. Um, she lost an airman to suicide. They were going to court-martial him, and he asked her the night before, could she stopped the court-martial she said she couldn't and of course he didn't show for the court-martial he had ended his life so she's carrying that around so she hired me to come down and and talk to the gathered you know her the staff at lackland and she sat down front and made me really nervous and but afterwards i was still hanging out with the public relations officer and everybody went to lunch after i got done and somebody came out and they said look frank you know what every table in that lunchroom in the cafeteria they were all talking about mental illness mental health depression and suicide he goes it was was as i'm walking around i can hear everybody's talking about it when they never never it never come up before so again once you once you you know break that dam and, and allow people to give voice to it then you know then they're willing to share so in the military because it can be career limiting depending on who your commander is. Um, it's, uh, they even have hotline 
you know, suicide prevention lifelines staffed by former, you know, military, by veterans who've been there, done that, and you can talk to them confidentially without going to the shrink on base and risk, you know, their career being limited. So, yeah, it's, uh, and of course, 22 veterans a day die by suicide in one active duty. So it's it's a big problem. And by the way, you mentioned college. Three college students a day die by suicide these days. Three a day, every day. So wow. I speak I speak at colleges as well. Yeah, that's a that's a really these numbers are quite high. Yep. Is that that's and I take it that's probably just here in the U.S., not worldwide. Yep. Twenty-four thousand students on average um, attempt, and three a day in their lives. Wow, big yep. numbers. Yeah, big number. It's it's yeah, it's I wish I could speak to every um class coming in at parent at parent student that weekend when they're going into college and have the parents and students right there and talk about this so the parents know what to look for, the you know, the kids know what to look for with their roommate, you know, sweet mates, whatever. I wish I could be there for them at the beginning because you know, it's not it's not the 13th year of public school, it's college. Yeah. Big transition. So, yeah, you got to do your own laundry. What a drag! Oh God, that's yeah, that would drive me over the edge right there. <laughs> um, yeah, because what we do is, um, I did this for a uh, construction company called Postvention. You go in after suicide and you decode it for. It was a thirty-year employee, and you wow. get everybody together, and you what you do is you put the puzzle together in retrospect, pretty much everybody there had a piece of the puzzle and uh, about the suicide, but not everybody had the entire puzzle. So that, it, but when you put it back together and then you step back and look at it, you know, everybody's recollections, then it's obvious. It's like, Oh my God, it's right there. Um, a friend of mine calls that the, the tyranny of hindsight. When you put the puzzle together mm -hmm. and take everybody's impressions of what had been going on, and add them all up, you realize, wow, it was right there all, all along. You could, you could see it. It's like the, the movie in the book, The Perfect Storm. You, When you mm -hmm. look back at it, you can see the storm forming. And I hope uh, people listening to the show pay attention and just use, use all your senses, like you said, Frank. Trust your gut. Yeah. Trust your gut, your intuition. You walk by somebody and the word depression pops into your head. Uh-oh. And, you know, and ask. You know, it's, I mean, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's better than having to find out they died by suicide and you were like, oh man, I, I saw that. Yeah. Hindsight is, is that way. We all have 2020 vision looking backwards. And to, yeah. to leave you on a high note, a friend of mine says, uh, love is blind, but marriage is 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. End no, on we, a joke. No, it's good. It was good to end it on a high note. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, I think uh, it's a good talk. It's it's thought provoking, and uh, you get you get an emotional response out of folks. I've had uh, you know personal uh, you know friends and family lost due to suicide, both in my my short forty times around the sun, which is not that many. And uh, this is something that's, I think it's it's more prevalent than we know. We start you start sharing those numbers and people start thinking about it it's probably you know even underreported a little bit it it is and then that doesn't include the 65,000 opioid deaths 
last year. We don't know how many of those were accidental overdoses or intentional overdoses. So the number may be much higher. And, and there are predictions that because of the pandemic, the numbers this year will be tens of thousands higher, uh, what they call deaths of despair. Because, you know, the moratorium on evictions is gone, the moratorium on foreclosures is gone, and, you know, 40% of restaurants probably aren't going to open again. So there's, you know, and are they going to re-up the 600 bucks a week until the end of the year? So, yeah, it's, it's I worry that it's just going to be a, a huge year for suicide. Yeah. Well, no, I, th- I thank you for, for coming on the show and yeah. giving us the vocabulary and the way to talk about it. Well, and we both know you love to talk. I do. Yeah. I do. I've never done an hour and a half. I get, uh, yeah, I get, uh, I get notes from the editing team. Like, please get closer to the hour. You make it so hard for us to edit when it, when it gets this yeah. long. And you know what? Today, there may be somebody listening whose life we actually saved. And I always figured that's a good day's work. It's always a good day. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Hi to my favorite junior shrink at 10 will, years old. I'm going to say I'm going to keep encouraging that and see if he if he goes that way. I think if he knew that when he was that young, I knew at fourth grade I was going to be a comedian. So if he knows that, that's that's a gift. I mean, that yeah. is. We'll see what happens. We encourage anything in this house, all possibilities until the last <laughs> <Yeah>. second. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, all right, man. You. Take care, man. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. Build.